Listener supported. WNYC Studios. This is The Takeaway. I'm Melissa Harris-Perry. These American service members who gave their lives, it's an overused word, but it's totally appropriate here, were heroes. Heroes who've been engaged in a dangerous, selfless mission to save the lives of others. On Thursday, two deadly terrorist attacks near the Kabul airport in Afghanistan killed dozens of Afghans and at least 13 U.S. military members. It was the deadliest attack on U.S. military forces in Afghanistan in roughly 10 years. U.S. officials say that an Afghanistan-based affiliate of ISIS was behind the attack. Now, these violent attacks underscore the severity of the situation on the ground in Afghanistan, even as the Biden administration scrambles to evacuate thousands of people by August 31st. Earlier this week, the Biden administration told refugee aid organizations to prepare to resettle as many as 50,000 Afghan refugees. And while much of the recent focus on migration has shifted to the Middle East, the Supreme Court this week ruled that the Biden administration must reinstate the Trump-era immigration policy known as Remain in Mexico, which forces many asylum seekers to wait for U.S. asylum hearings in Mexico. This ruling comes at a time when the Biden administration is already being criticized for holding over other Trump-era policies, including one called Title 42, which allows Customs and Border Protection officials to expel migrants without the option of claiming asylum in order to prevent the spread of COVID-19 in holding facilities. Children and some families are exempt. So even though President Biden campaigned on the idea of a more humane approach to immigration, his administration's policies themselves are starting to look a lot like those of his predecessors. Here to help us understand all of this is Sergio Gonzalez, Executive Director of the Immigration Hub. Welcome, Sergio. Thank you for having me. And Camilo Montoya-Gavez, who is immigration reporter for CBS News. Welcome to The Takeaway, Camilo. Hi, Melissa. It's good to be back. So, Camilo, let me start with you. Can you break down the Supreme Court decision uh, on Remain in Mexico and what that means for the Biden administration? Sure. Uh, So, Melissa, for context, um, the Remain in Mexico policy was a Trump administration program that required more than 70,000 non-Mexican asylum seekers to wait in northern Mexico for their U.S. immigration court hearings. Uh, Many of them found themselves in squalid tent camps and in dangerous border towns, and only about 1% uh, of those enrolled in the program were actually able to secure asylum. Uh, So it was a policy that was strongly condemned by Democrats and by advocates for asylum seekers. Uh, When President Biden took office in January, he quickly suspended Remain in Mexico and stopped returning migrants under the program. Uh, And then earlier this summer, Secretary of Homeland Security Alejandro Mayorkas Uh, terminated the program formally through uh, an order. Uh, Texas and Missouri challenged that termination in court, alleging that the Biden administration had failed to comply with administrative law when it terminated this program, and that it also failed to consider what they believed to be the benefits of the policy. Uh, In their eyes, the policy uh, was successful in stemming uh, the flow of migrants coming to the U.S.-Mexico border. And the number of apprehensions in 2019 when this policy uh, was implemented did uh, plummet after the creation 
of this policy. So a federal judge in Texas agreed with these two Republican-led states earlier this month uh, and ordered the Biden administration to reinstate this program uh, until they can detain all asylum seekers who are subject to what is called uh, mandatory uh, detention. Uh, and now the Supreme Court has refused to suspend this judge's order, which now requires the Biden administration to reinstate this policy. And they are working on exactly doing that. But they need Mexico Mexico's cooperation rather because, again, these are non-Mexican citizens uh, who are being returned to Mexico. Camilla, thank you so much. I think that's that's helpful to to kind of understand that context to get what's happening here. But Sergio, can you make this um, human for me? What does this mean for asylum seekers? This is a devastating ruling. Not only do we very much disagree with the decision on the legal grounds found by the Supreme Court, basically forcing the Biden administration to negotiate with a foreign government and setting foreign policy. But the human impact here is incredible. Um, We're talking about thousands of individuals, families, and children who are going to be forced back to wait in these very dangerous conditions. There have been many documented cases of children who have been raped, who have been abused, who have been um, even murdered as a result of the Remain in Mexico policy. And this is something that was challenged legally under the Trump administration successfully. And courts found that this policy was illegal. It violates international and national uh, laws. And so this is why the Trump administration and Stephen Miller, who was the President Trump's chief immigration policy advisor, moved to the illegal um, Title 42, which we'll talk about later. But the fact that now we're going to potentially be going back to this policy is simply impossible to comprehend. And, um, you know, this is why advocates and why we are really pushing for the Biden administration to do everything possible to minimize the impact of this ruling and also make sure that they still have the ability to end uh, remain in Mexico through other means, which they do have the authority to do that. Um, yeah, so, this is simply... Right. So, so I, 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 want, I want to ask you on exactly that, because it's one thing to um, say that a policy must remain in effect, right? And it's important to follow a, uh, you know, a decision of the courts. We do have, you know, multiple branches of government for a reason. But on the other hand, I think we all know that there can be policies that are in effect, but are ineffective on purpose. Is there a reason to think that the Biden administration is going to aggressively reinstate this policy? Well, I believe that the administration is currently deliberating, you know, how they're going to pursue this issue and how they're going to respond to this decision. I do think they have a lot of tools in their toolbox in order to both comply uh, with the court decision. Basically, the court said that they need to comply in good faith. But again, like this requires cooperation with Mexico. So there have to be talks with Mexico about like what this would look like. There also have to be other considerations like studying detention, like studying the people who are in the program. So there's a lot of legal tools that um, the administration has in order to actually be in compliance with the court. The administration also has the ability to issue a new memo that also that would end the program. And so we are really encouraging the administration to not stand up a new type of MPP or an MPP light, but instead make sure that this program is ended through issuing a new memo. 
Camillo, let me come to you for a moment because, you know, this language of asylum right now, um, although it is th- this policy that we're talking about is on our southern border, this question of asylum and of, of refugees and of those who are seeking um, sort of protection within the context of the U.S. is undoubtedly going to get connected to um, what is hap- happening in Afghanistan and particularly to the violence that we saw yesterday. I'm wondering if you can just help us to understand a bit what making a claim on asylum for in the U.S. is even like right now? Sure. So for people who come to the U.S.-Mexico border who cross uh, without authorization, they can seek asylum regardless of how they cross. Um, and to obtain asylum, you have to meet this legal threshold, Melissa, uh, and you have to prove that you were persecuted or that you fear persecution if you're in your home country uh, based on your uh, religion, uh, political views, uh, race, um, nationality or membership in a social group like the LGBTQ community. Um, and so um, there are some um, migrants from Central America and other countries like Venezuela, Cuba, Nicaragua, uh, who have been able to be granted asylum uh, by U.S. courts, uh, but the majority uh, are not uh, at the border. Um, refugee status is a different matter. Refugee status is uh, for uh, people who are waiting in third countries and uh, who also fear being persecuted in the countries that they fled from. Um, What we know is happening to evacuated Afghans is that all of them are being taken to U.S. bases in the Middle East and Europe, and they're undergoing security screenings there, and some are being resettled here in the U.S. Many of them have special immigrant visas, which is a program for Afghans who help the U.S. war effort, and those folks uh, will get automatically green cards when they come here to the U.S., and their spouses and children will, will also get legal status, so they won't have to make a case for asylum here. There are some Afghans who are being resettled here under something called humanitarian parole, which only authorizes their entry. So these are Afghans who have not completed uh, their special immigrant visa applications or who are not eligible for them, uh, but who still fear that they could be persecuted by the Taliban. So they would have to seek asylum or other immigration benefits once they, they arrive here in the U.S. So... Sergio, help me to to think through this a little bit from a political perspective, because we know that immigration remains this um, very tenuous, difficult, you know, not at all bipartisan issue within the U.S. right now. And and I'm wondering, as the Biden administration is looking at this, um, you know, these questions about how to address the remain in Mexico policy reinstatement and how to address this resettlement of um, of Afghans uh, here in the U.S., what they're, what sort of political calculations they're making on these questions? Well, I guess I want to step back for a second and look back to the Trump administration in order to answer the question, because, you know, we saw that President Trump really used immigration as his primary political weapon and way to mobilize his base. And while that had been certainly an element of the Republican Party prior to Donald Trump, you know, he literally launched his presidential campaign on an anti-immigrant platform. Remember him calling Mexican immigrants rapists and criminals. Um, And so throughout his presidency, he and his administration took over 1,000 executive actions and administrative actions on immigration alone. So not only was there a huge political focus in using immigration as a way to divide the country in a way to play to the Republican base, 
but it also was used as a policy issue um, to attack immigrants, to undermine rights, to block people from coming into the country, to massively increase detentions and de deportations of immigrants. And um, there was some question after President Trump left office if the party would continue to go down this road, uh, this route of nativism and xenophobia, or they might turn a corner and there might be more reasonable actors like there have been in the past, like the John McCain's of the past, who would actually negotiate on immigration um, from a less extreme right point of view. That certainly has not been the case. The GOP and Republicans have continued to use this as the primary way that they are trying to weaken the Biden administration politically, and the Biden White House knows that. Despite that fact, I would say that you know, the Biden administration has taken over 100 actions at this point on immigration alone. They've started to roll back a lot of Trump policies while there still remain many in place. We saw the rolling back of things like the Muslim ban, things like the public charge rule that basically was a wealth test for immigrants who wanted to come into the country. And there is tremendous devastation and damage that needs to be undone. And we would really like to see the Biden administration continue to move aggressively and even more quickly and swiftly in order to not only undo what was um, done under the Trump administration, but actually put in place a lot of the things that the president himself committed to during his campaign to build a new and fair immigration system. Camilo, let me come to you on something that Sergio had mentioned earlier, and that's really about the conditions um, at these sites um, where people are being told to uh, remain in Mexico. What is the situation at the border like right now for unaccompanied minors? Sure. So the Biden administration, while it has reverse several Trump-era policies, including this Remain in Mexico program that it is now being forced to re-implement, has uh, continued uh, to cite this public health law known as Title 42 that was first invoked during the Trump administration back in March of last year to expel migrant adults and some families with children to Mexico without allowing them to seek asylum. This is a public health order that was authorized by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and the argument behind it is that if all migrants are allowed to stay in the U.S. and to seek asylum here, border patrol facilities are going to become severely overcrowded. And that is going to be a conducive environment for the spread of the coronavirus. So it is a public health argument, though obviously advocates and some public health experts dispute that argument, uh, especially because it was implemented during the Trump administration, which had sought uh, to restrict asylum uh, for four years. Um, so unaccompanied children are now exempted from this Title 42 policy. The Biden administration declined to expel these children to Mexico on humanitarian grounds. So it has been transferring uh, most uh, of these unaccompanied children to the Department of Health and Human Services, which has shelters and other emergency facilities at military installations and work camps to house uh, these unaccompanied minors, most of them uh, teenagers from Central America. So they are, the, they are the only population of migrants that currently are not being expelled to Mexico. The vast majority of single adult migrants are still being expelled. Uh, some families uh, with children are being expelled under Title 42, Melissa, to Mexico, but most are not. Uh, most are being briefly detained by Border Patrol officials and then released to NGOs and shelters where they're tested for their coronavirus, and then they're allowed to go to their respective destinations in the U.S. to continue their immigration proceedings here. So it really depends on uh, the demographic uh, group. So, Sergio, as I'm listening to Camilo um, 
talk about these conditions, these circumstances, and sort of repeatedly using the word, word expelled to understand what's happening at our border. Can I ask from a, from a practical matter, although the discourse is very different under the Biden administration, is immigration policy truly different under the Biden administration than it was under the Trump administration? I believe it is. I believe it is. I think that there was massive human devastation and destruction to our immigration system under President Trump. From working with the administration every day, advocating to the administration every day, um, we have seen a massive change in terms of a rollback of a lot of hideous policies and also them start to take the necessary actions and building blocks of increasing immigration into the country, of increasing legal pathways to immigration. Also, I am very happy to say and very supportive of the fact that the president has really leaned in to a path to citizenship being included in the Senate Democrats $3.5 trillion human infrastructure package that was passed. The original version has not been passed uh, fully, but the congressional Democrats have started moving on that. And that really has been a major campaign by immigration advocates um, and others in undocumented communities for over 30 years. With that being said, I will say there's still very hideous policies that were created for the purpose of stopping immigrants from being able to come to this country by President Trump and Stephen Miller that remain in effect. And Title 42 is a center point of that. So, you know, we have advocated for the Biden administration to roll back this policy. There should be no reason that Title 42 remains in effect. There, the, the public health officials, human rights experts have all come out against the use of Title 42 and have said that it was simply a pretext by Stephen Miller in order to stop immigrants from being able to come into the United States. And there are other ways, in fact, that we can address the public health concerns instead of simply putting a complete block across our border from asylum seekers and migrants being able to fairly be able to make a case to come into the country. So with that being said, I very, you know, there, there is a lot, a lot that needs to be done. And we haven't even talked about still the number of people sitting in detention centers and the fact that we still have these private detention uh, complexes that exist across our country. Um, so there is a lot that needs to be done. But I will say that there is definitely a remarkable difference from where we were under the Trump administration. So, Camilla, let me pick up on that. We've been talking about what's going on at the border, but I'm wondering about deportations. And certainly, um, you know, President Trump was uh, quite critical of of immigration and and used a number of uh, policy tools. But President Obama also um, deported a record number um, of unauthorized immigrants in the country. I'm wondering where we are on that right now. Sure. So President Biden, during the campaign trail, admitted that the Obama administration made a mistake in not moving fast enough to curtail immigration arrests and deportations of immigrants without criminal records. Uh, The Biden administration tried initially to implement a 100-day moratorium on most deportations um, when President Biden took office, but that was blocked by a judge uh, in Texas, uh, stemming, uh, again, from a lawsuit filed by Texas. Texas has been very successful in blocking some of these Biden administration immigration policies. The Biden administration has also 
establish new rules that uh, instruct immigration and customs enforcement agents to focus on immigrants who may pose a threat to the public or national security, as well as recent border crossers for arrest and deportation. This basically would spare everyone else who is here without legal permission, uh, but who doesn't have a criminal record. Uh, But even those rules were recently blocked uh, by a federal judge in Texas. Again, this court case also stems from another lawsuit filed by Texas. Uh, So the Biden administration has been trying to curtail immigration arrests and deportations, but it has seen those efforts curtailed and hindered by lawsuits from conservative states. Camilo Montoya-Galvez, an immigration reporter for CBS News. Sergio Gonzalez is the executive director of the Immigration Hub. Thank you both. Thank you. Thank you. Following Thursday's deadly terrorist attacks in Kabul, President Joe Biden acknowledged the tragic loss of life amid the withdrawal of U.S. troops. And he delivered a refrain frequently heard from U.S. presidents when talking about foreign terror attacks that claim American lives. I've also ordered my commanders to develop operational plans to strike ISIS-K assets, leadership, and facilities. We will respond with force and precision at our time, at the place we choose, in the moment of our choosing. Here's what you need to know. These ISIS terrorists will not win. But for the moment, the president and his administration are continuing to focus on getting all members of the U.S. military out of Afghanistan by August 31st, limiting America's presence in the country while also responding to the recent deadly attacks might be a complicated balancing act. For more, I'm joined by Nancy Youssef, who is national security reporter for The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for being here, Nancy. Thanks for having me. So I know you're reporting from the U.S., but what did you hear from sources on the ground about the aftermath of Thursday's attacks? I mean, they really described a horrific scene of several explosions or or gunshots, just a, a swirl of confusion amongst these huge crowds of people, Afghans, in some cases, orphans, trying to get out of the country and hospitals filling up and numbers that Um, I think can be overwhelming, over um, 150 wounded, nearly 100 killed, and a scene at the gate where U.S. forces were of just shock at the scale of the attack on U.S. forces, and a real sense of, I think, both in the U.S. and there of how much more suffering, how much more trauma must this period be. I think there was almost a feeling particularly in the Pentagon, of just shock at just another horrific chapter in the final days of the U.S. presence in Afghanistan. As you're talking about that reaction at the Pentagon, I was absolutely riveted by General Kenneth uh, McKenzie, who's leading the U.S. Central Command. He he gave a press conference immediately following the attacks. I want to listen to to one um, segment here and have you respond. Service members dying, nobody feels that more closely, uh, more uh, directly than me and everyone else in the chain of command. And we recognize that we need to continue to evaluate our procedures as we go forward. Same time, there's a tension there. We have to continue to let people own the airfield because that is why we are there. We're not there to defend ourselves. We're there to defend ourselves while we process American citizens first, but also the other categories of people that I've mentioned, get them to a place where we can fly them out into a safer, better future. Can you help us make sense of those comments? So a couple things. I think first and foremost, there was almost a sense of shock amongst the leadership about the scale and scope of this. And one got the feeling that people were trying to appear stoic 
and strong in the face of something that really was just beyond their imaginations in terms of what could happen. I think while many believe that there could be an attack because you were asking U.S. service members to essentially screen people at the gate, which meant they had to look and touch them and really take that risk. Even if you think it could happen once it did happen, and when we were talking about 13 dead and 18 wounded, I just think there was a sense of shock. I also think that there was an attempt to say that these U.S. service members died not trying to fight someone, but to try to give safe passage, try to give freedom and opportunity for Afghans, try to protect fellow Americans leaving. And I think there was an attempt to get at that at a very tough time. And so I think it sounded so stoic that one would wonder how they were processing all this themselves because he was, I think, trying to say we have a mission to do and at the same time trying to mourn a loss. And you just got the sense throughout the building Thursday that people were just overwhelmed. And I think those comments kind of reflected that. So, so Nancy, I so appreciate um, you helping us to understand some of that tone. Can you also help us to understand a bit the current relationship, strategic relationship between the Taliban and the U.S. forces who are attempting to leave and to, to remove many of our, our, our allies? I think it's a little difficult for folks to, to understand what that looks like and is right now. It's such a great question, and it really is the essential question of all of this, because for 20 years, the U.S. has been fighting the Taliban, which provided safe haven for Al-Qaeda, which was responsible for the 9-11 attacks. And here in the final days of the U.S. presence in Afghanistan, it is now depending on the Taliban to get out. The reason is the Taliban is now in control of Afghanistan. It's it's in charge of the government, it's in charge of the security forces. And there are hundreds, if not thousands of Taliban forces out on the streets of Kabul in and around the airport area. There are at least two checkpoints manned by the Taliban that, that go towards the airport and they're responsible for determining who goes forward, for, for checking um, Afghans and Americans passing through for weapons, for paperwork and whatnot. And the US has said, that it cannot leave without cooperation from the Taliban. And I can understand for your listeners how jarring that is to hear, given that there's a, a 20-year war that has been waged against the Taliban. The, the additional complication is, I think we think of the Taliban as monolithic, and it's not. There are factions within the Taliban, some aligned with al-Qaeda. And so how does the U.S. put so much trust, at least in these final days, into those forces when they themselves are very complicated. The U.S. doesn't have any sort of ability to screen who does those security clearances or who's at the airport. And so for the U.S. to leave, there aren't enough forces to be outside of the airport. And there's an incredible risk for the U.S. to do it themselves. They are leaning on the Taliban to be that outer security perimeter for 5,000 troops that are really surrounded by Taliban forces on that airport compound. It's so helpful to think about how complicated these groups are, not only the Taliban, but also ISIS. What should Americans seek to understand about ISIS-K? So ISIS-K stands for ISIS Khorasan, which refers to a part of Afghanistan. And if you can believe it, it's an organization that is more barbaric and it's thinking about what kind of state it wants to see than the Taliban. And in fact, a lot of its members are disillusioned Taliban members. 
the Taliban and ISIS have been at war with each other throughout the coexistence, which dates back to roughly 2015, to the point that in some instances, the U.S. was rooting for the Taliban to prevail over the Islamic State in Afghanistan. There have been attacks against the Islamic State by the Taliban. As the Taliban swept through Afghanistan, it was going through and opening prisons and killing Islamic State fighters that were held, including a top leader. And so the fear had been that the Islamic State would target the airport, not only to go after American forces, but to go after Taliban fighters, some of them the most elite of the forces in the Taliban that are now stationed outside the airport. What remains unclear, though, is the nature of how the Taliban will go after the Islamic State going forward. One thing to keep in mind is that with the collapse of the U.S.-backed government, there has been a power vacuum left that does not appear to be fully filled in by the Taliban, and so it creates an opportunity for groups like the Islamic State to come forward. The one last thing I would say is, like the Taliban, the Islamic State is not monolithic. There are wings of the Islamic State within Afghanistan, some of them who have been co-opted by the Haqqani network, which is an al-Qaeda affiliate that supports the Taliban. And so that is a further complication in the relationship between the Taliban and the Islamic State. Mm. One last question. General McKenzie and President Biden both said they plan to respond with force to Thursday's attacks. What does this mean, given that we are working as a nation very hard to leave Afghanistan? We've lost now American service members in that effort. Is this just going to pull American military back into this conflict? Well, I think the challenge is even before that is how do you find those ISIS targets? Because when the U.S. military withdrew from Afghanistan, it didn't just withdraw its forces. It also withdrew its intelligence apparatus, its intelligence officers, its its network of intelligence that would allow them to find the the best um, target for in retaliation for what happened Thursday. And so how does the U.S. then go after the target that needs to be struck from its perspective without the intelligence on the ground to determine that. Is it depending on the Taliban now for intelligence on which strike um, is appropriate in response to this? It's unclear. Moreover, the U.S. is considering doing these strikes at a time when it is also at a very delicate part of its mission, which is it is trying to evacuate the Afghans and Americans that it can, and at the same time, get its forces out as well. Remember, the U.S. has more than 5,000 troops in Afghanistan. They didn't arrive there in one day. They arrived there over several days, and so it'll take several days to get out. Can you conduct a strike and successfully protect them at such a delicate point in the mission? That also remains to be seen. And so in addition to how does the U.S. enter in Afghanistan again to conduct the strike, how does it pick its targets? How does it do it in such a way that it doesn't further endanger itself at really a point where it arguably is at one of the greatest risks of the mission. My goodness, there is still so much more. Nancy Youssef, national security reporter for the Wall Street Journal. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. There's a lot going on right now. Mounting economic inequality, threats to democracy, environmental disaster, the sour stench of chaos in the air. 
I'm Brooke Gladstone, host of WNYC's On the Media. Want to understand the reasons and the meanings of the narratives that led us here? And maybe how to head them off at the pass? That's On the Media's specialty. Take a listen wherever you get your podcasts. Excuse me while I have a moment. Yeah, see, it's the weekend, and even with all the difficult political news in the world, there's still some good news down here in North Carolina, where I live. In North Carolina, judges have issued a ruling that will reinstate voting rights for around 56,000 people with felony convictions. Under a new ruling, felons who are still on probation or parole can now cast a ballot. And if this holds, more than 55,000 people who have not been able to register to vote beforehand will be able to. Now, just to be clear, this is not a radical fringe policy. This is a position consistent with the voting rules in 23 other states and the District of Columbia. But this expansion of voting rights does make North Carolina nearly unique among former Confederate states. The rest have a variety of more restrictive laws that ban formerly incarcerated citizens from accessing the ballot. At the heart of these restrictions is race. In North Carolina, 21% of the voting age population is black. But black people make up 42% of those disenfranchised by the felony-based voting restrictions. For voting rights advocates, that means this is a moment of celebration. And it's also just the latest moment in a long struggle for voting rights in the Tar Heel State. In 1875, John Hyman became the first black man elected to the U.S. Congress in North Carolina. But he was defeated after a single term, as many gains of the Reconstruction era were rolled back in the 1877 Compromise. And the struggle continued. Starting in 1894, an interracial governing coalition known as the Fusion Movement gained power across the state, and it showed how poor people could work across racial lines to gain power through the vote. But then, in 1898, a white racist mob overthrew the elected interracial fusion government of Wilmington, North Carolina, in a violent insurrection that ushered in an era of poll taxes, literacy tests, and near total disenfranchisement of black North Carolinians. And the struggle continued. In 1960, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, or SNCC, was founded on the campus of Shaw University in Raleigh, North Carolina. Five years later, John Lewis was chairman of SNCC when he was brutally beaten on the Edmund Pettus Bridge. The Voting Rights Act was passed six months later. And when Barack Obama was elected as America's first black president in 2008, North Carolina was rendered blue as a result of the historic black voter turnout. But in 2013, the Supreme Court gutted the Voting Rights Act in Shelby v. Holder and the Republican-led North Carolina General Assembly nearly immediately passed what was described as, quote, a monster voter suppression law. This monster of voter suppression led Nikki Michaud, who is the state's longest-serving black state legislator, to reflect on the long struggle. We are retrogressing. One of the very first pieces of legislation I passed, got passed, was uh, open registration. Prior to the time we we did not have open. You had to, if you wanted a registration drive, 
you had to go to the Board of Elections and get a registrar, if you could find one who would come into the black community and, and register folks that way. The legislation I introduced just opened it up completely. And I remember one Republican legislator asking me at that time, hey, you just want everybody to vote, don't you? And the struggle continued. Unwilling to simply accept turning back the clock on voting rights, the 21st century voting rights movement emerged in North Carolina. Led by Reverend William Barber, Moral Monday's protests drew national attention to the state, and in 2016, this new movement defeated the monster suppression law in federal court. But during the last five years, North Carolina has witnessed continuing attempts to erode the voting rights of its citizens. Yet at every turn, advocates, activists, community, and citizens have continued the long struggle and pushed back to protect the vote. And this week, they secured a meaningful victory to unlock the vote, which is why it's okay to have a little celebration. Joining me now to discuss the most recent steps in the long struggle is Diana Powell, Executive Director of Justice Served North Carolina, one of the community-based organizations that brought suit against North Carolina in the recent case to expand voting rights. Diana, welcome. Thank you, Melissa. And also here is Daryl Atkinson, Co-Director of Forward Justice, who served as the lead attorney on the case. Daryl, welcome. It's great to be here, Melissa. Diana, let's begin with you. How did you get involved in this fight to restore voting rights for formerly incarcerated individuals? Well, I started out of a personal experience that I had with my niece being involved in the criminal justice system. And uh, watching her go through that system was heartening and watching other citizens going through the system. And so then I decided that I would go to the courtroom and I will continue to bring light to what was happening inside of our courtroom and then start working with people that that was returning back from being incarcerated and making sure that they can uh, navigate through uh, a productive life. Because our mission here at Justice Serve is to prevent individuals from continuing in that criminal justice system. So that's how I got in. Daryl, now you were the lead attorney in the case. Can you help me to understand a bit about um, what is the sort of fundamental legal basis for the argument here? Sure, Melissa. Um, We finished a week-long trial in the week of August 16th. And during that trial, the judges got to hear from people directly impacted by North Carolina's felon disenfranchisement law. They got to hear from people like Diana, who run organizations that are assisting returning citizens in registering and giving them education with regards to their voting rights, but whose missions are frustrated by the law because it thwarts what they're trying to do. We also heard from expert witnesses that detail the racist history of the law, the current disproportionate racial impact of the law, that thousands of people would vote but for this law being in place. And finally, we didn't hear from a single witness, not a single piece of evidence was introduced from the state that justified disenfranchising thousands of our citizens who are predominantly African-American. And the judges received all that information, and I believe they were compelled uh, to move and restore voting rights to 56,000 folks, uh, a real monumental win for the state of North Carolina as it represents the largest expansion of voting rights in this state uh, 
since 1965, since the Voting Rights Act of 1965. So Diana, let me come back to you. Um, I heard Daryl talk about the ways that not being able to vote actually thwarted the work of organizations like yours. Speak directly to people who say folks who are on probation and parole don't want to vote. They don't care. This isn't going to make a big difference. Well, Melissa, that's where our work come into play, especially when we are boots on the ground, uh, educating uh, those individuals, letting them know that people actually died, that they can have a right to vote. That's where our power comes in at. Um, When we talk about everyday life movement, this stuff is governed. Um, It comes in by laws and policies that are set in place. So therefore, we have to continue to educate our community that you have a right to vote. You have a voice within your own community that you can be free. We live in that slave mentality. So therefore, we got to break those chains. We got to break that mentality and bring unity within our community. And there's no greater weapon that we have than the power of vote to bring a more effective unity within our community. Hmm. Daryl, now, as much as this is a celebratory moment for voting rights activists and community activists around issues of incarceration, there is still likely an appeal coming. Is that right? Sure. The legislative defendants have um, given notice of appeal and, you know, they, they have a right to do so. But we, you know, we feel pretty strongly about our case because we proved four major points that, you know, even an appellate court is going to have to take notice of. Number one, the history and intent of North Carolina's disenfranchisement regime is steeped in white supremacy, racial terror, and racial discrimination against Black people. That was the original intent of the law and is serving that purpose today. Number two, the impact of the law produces tremendous racial disparities at the statewide and county level. You mentioned 21 percent African-Americans represent 21 percent of the voting age population, 42 percent of those disenfranchised black men represent 9 percent of the voting age population, 36 percent of those disenfranchised. So the law is doing exactly what it was designed to do with its original intent. Number three, we prove that the law disenfranchises thousands of North Carolinians who would vote but for the law. So to your point, the question that you asked Diana about, oh, this group of, uh, of the population wouldn't vote anyway. That's just not true. Our expert witness put in persuasive evidence that showed that of the current supervised population, 38, 39% of those folks had registered to vote in the past and over 20% of them voted in the 2016 election because they were eligible to vote, meaning that they were over the age of 18 and were not serving a felony sentence. And then lastly, the defense did not put in any evidence to justify disenfranchising thousands of people, predominantly African-American. An appellate court is going to have to review that. And I really want to hear the legislative defendant's justification for disenfranchising thousands of black people every electoral cycle. So if appellate, if the appellate route is how they choose to go, which it seems like they are, we're going to be prepared for those arguments. 
Mm. So, Daryl, I I love hearing those points and laid out particularly in that way, because it does offer us so much clarity on the side of both the the purposes of the legislative action and also um, to understand sort of the the consequences of this. Diana, I want to talk for a moment about the criminal justice system in terms or the criminal punishment system and how folks end up with felony convictions in the first place. And and I also I just want you, if you can help me a little bit here to understand the word felony. I think sometimes people hear the word felony and they presume um, uh, individuals who are a danger to the communities in which they live. You've been working on this issue for the better part of a decade. Help us understand what those words actually mean. Well, in my experience in going into the courtroom and and started uh, seeing how people were so easily charged and convicted of a felony crime, You have to understand, North Carolina is a plea deal state. 98% of our people that are sitting in prison and jail is on a plea deal, guilty or not guilty. One, because they are poor, couldn't afford to hire their own attorney, didn't understand when those plea deals were coming and what they were being sentenced with. I was in court just yesterday watching a young man being sentenced to 25 years for a drug charge because he had... Uh, He was a level six felony because he had these repeated charges of drugs and he was actually begging. I don't need prison. I need help. I need someone to help me. I'm sick. But they would not even consider, take that into consideration that this man was standing before the judge begging for help versus going to prison. It's so easy um, to get a felon on your record drug charge, larceny, just trying to feed your family or driving without driver's license and, and, and continue to get those stacked charges. It's easy to get in this system. It takes a lifetime to get out of it. Mm. Daryl, what difference might it make for those individuals who are still under the supervision of that system to be able to make their voices heard um, in elections? I think it will have a huge difference, uh, Melissa. I mean, we know the elections in North Carolina are often decided by razor thin margins. Take, for example, last election, we voted for who would be the chief justice of the North Carolina Supreme Court. 5.3 million votes were cast. The, The difference between the winner and the loser was a mere 401 votes. Imagine if 55,000 people are now have access to that process, that outcome of that election could very well be very, very different. So this is influencing electoral outcomes in this state. It is disproportionately impacting the voting power of the African-American community because the way that policing happens and the way that the phenomena that Ms. Powell just described People who are convicted of felonies come from a small subset of neighborhoods, right? And so they go back to those small set subset of neighborhoods, which means you can have concentrated disenfranchisement in a county, in a few blocks, in a few neighborhoods. That dramatically impacts the voting power of those communities, which is in violation of Article 1, Section 19 of the North Carolina Constitution, because our courts, our equal protection clause in the state, our courts have interpreted that clause, that it demands that 
communities have substantial equal voting power in comparison to one another. So, for example, if you have one community that has 90 percent of its people who are eligible to vote, you have another community and this community is 70 percent of those people are eligible to vote because that 20 percent differential is related to people who are disenfranchised, obviously the community with 90% has much more voting power than the community with 70%. And that's in violation of our North Carolina constitution. Daryl Atkinson is co-director of Forward Justice, and Ms. Diana Powell is executive director of Justice Served North Carolina. Thank you both for joining us today. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. All right, y'all, we made it through another week and we really appreciate you being here with us. Now, I won't be with you on Monday. I'm taking a day off to mourn the loss of a beloved family member. But you come on back because Arun Venegapal will be bringing you some great stories. And I'll be back here on The Takeaway on Tuesday. But before we go, I'm going to shout out our fantastic team. Ethan Oberman, congrats! He's our acting senior producer right now. Jackie Martin is our line producer. Meg Dalton, Shanta Covington, Lydia McMillan-Laird, and Katerina Barton are our producers. Vince Fairchild is our engineer and board operator. Jay Cowett is our director and sound designer. David Gable is our executive assistant. Zach Bynum is our digital editor. And Lee Hill is apparently steering this ship as our executive producer. Don't forget to keep sending us your slice of life audio. Record a small piece of your world and email it to takeawaycallers at gmail.com. Tell us what we're hearing. We want to get to know you and we want to let the world hear you. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Melissa Harris-Perry and this is The Takeaway. Takeaway.